0: Бажаю здоров'я, шановні українці. У цей час ще тривають відновлювальні роботи в тих регіонах, де сьогодні були влучання російських ракет. Робимо все можливе, щоб відновити енерго і водопостачання і відновимо! Немає у російських терористів таких ракет, які б могли б влучити в українське бажання жити, жити цивілізовано і дбати про одне одного. What will it take to rebuild Ukraine when the war is over? A report released in September by the World Bank, the Ukrainian government, and the European Commission estimates that Russia's unprovoked invasion has already caused more than $97 billion in direct damage to Ukraine and that it could easily cost nearly $350 billion to rebuild the country after the war. Just for a sense of proportion, that is 1.6 times Ukraine's $200 billion gross domestic product in 2021. So, where is all that money going to come from? Well, our guests today are working on just that problem and will help us answer the question what would a Marshall Plan for Ukraine look like, and what will it take to get one implemented? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the U.K. McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Josh Rudolph, the fellow for maligned influence at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, and who also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. Welcome back to The Vertical, Josh. Great to be back in The Vertical, Brian. Great, great to have you. Great to have you in The Vertical. And also joining us from Tbilisi, Georgia, is Eka Kasyashvili, who served as head of USAID's anti-corruption program in Ukraine. Eka has also served as Georgia's foreign minister and justice minister. Welcome back to The Vertical, Eka. Thank you. So, so Josh, I want to start with you? you. You have been co-authoring a series of essays with Ambassador Norm Eisen, Um, who served as U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic in in the Obama administration, um, currently with the Brookings Institution. You've you've, you've co-authored a series of essays with Ambassador Eisen on the need to prioritize anti-corruption in Ukraine's reconstruction process. Um, Most recently, you shared uh, your takeaways from a donor conference on Ukrainian recovery in Berlin that was convened by the German presidency of the G7 and the European Commission. We'll get to that donor conference in a minute, but first... Um, and, and the goal of this, of course, is to create a platform for modern, I a mean, modern-day Marshall Plan for Ukraine, um, an issue which, of course, the German Marshall Fund has been a top thought leader on this. Um, we're going to make those pieces available in the show notes, and we're going to discuss them in a bit. But just to get us started, Josh, to, let's, let's address this elephant in the room um, to, 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 uh, to set the scene for our listeners. Why are we talking about anti-corruption in Ukraine? At a time when a war is is, is raging, when Ukrainians are fighting and dying for their very independence and and their very sovereignty, why prioritize anti-corruption now?
1: Great question. Well said. Elephant in the room indeed, because of course the top priority is to win the war. And talking about corruption issues in Ukraine could risk playing into the Kremlin's false narrative about it being a Hopelessly corrupt, failed state, or whatever other, you know, nonsense that's that's quite quite frankly the opposite of of the truth. The truth being that Ukrainians have been on this national mission, particularly since 2014, to build a a civic European nation. And a central pillar of that has been impressive anti-corruption reform. And now the the world has has seen on the battlefield just how fearsome that nation has become, you know, whereas on the Russian side, corruption has sapped morale and undermined military modernization. The FSB can't even buy a coup d'etat because the people just steal the bribe money. So, so that's point number one. Anti-corruption has made Ukraine stronger than Russia. So it's a strategic priority, including during and after the war. You know, we can also see that strategic priority from what happened before the war after Putin spent two decades subverting Ukrainian democracy by bankrolling pro-Russian parties and news channels through oligarchs like Firtash and Medvedchuk. Eventually, Ukraine started blocking those channels of strategic corruption uh, through both reform and actions like a couple of weeks after Biden's inauguration when Ukraine sanctioned Medvedchuk's proxies and and took their 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 news channels off the air and 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 hit the f- family wealth. It was only less than two days after that that the Russian defense Ministry started deploying soldiers to Ukraine's border as an alternative way to mm-hmm. to undermine Ukraine's sovereignty. And it was just three days before Putin launched this year's invasion that 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 putin was was airing his grievances about Ukraine by calling out by by name, the, the 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 specialized anti-corruption bodies like I, NABU and Sapo and HACC. So this war was a direct response to Ukraine's anti-corruption progress. Um, but you know, point number two, that progress is not complete. The new anti-corruption institutions uh, they they have growing pains, and there are other areas of the state, from the judiciary to the security service, that remain unreformed. And then finally, point three, the political imperative. It might not take more than one or two major corruption scandals to harm bipartisan support for giving Ukraine billions right. in assistance so i know we'll, we'll pick up that and i uh, yeah. you know in the second half the post midterms us uh p- political environment but if ukraine doesn't prioritize anti corruption there might not be a re- reconstruction funding on the scale that the ukrainian people have earned
0: Eka, I know you've worked for a long time on anti-corruption in in Ukraine as well as in your native Georgia, um, and you're currently working with with, with USAID on this in, in, in Ukraine. Do you do you concur with Josh's belief that we should, even you know, even though it might seem counterintuitive, to prioritize mm-hmm. corruption while Ukraine's fighting for its very existence? Um, but yeah, but I, nevertheless, mm-hmm. this is in Ukraine's interest. Yeah, go ahead.
2: I, I do, but I have to uh, emphasize that when we speak about the priorities. They are concurrent, so they it, one is not subsuming another. So let's say when we speak about the military help that is needed to Ukraine for you, to to win the war, is is not negated with prioritization on on fight against corruption. They go hand in hand, and in fact, the level of resistance and resilience that Ukraine is showcasing to the whole wide world right now is that is a result of the success of anti-corruption reforms as well, largely. Uh, We see that the state-building process in which the anti-corruption reforms were an integral component, they are delivering the result when the society managed to be consolidated under the leadership that generated that confidence, For the society to be part of the common effort and it's not fading away no matter what russia is doing right now and then the point about the future when we speak about the rebuilding and reconstruction a scandal or anything related to uh corruption related mishandling of the funds related to rebuilding and reconstruction cannot only undermine the financial component of what is needed for rebuilding and reconstruction but that level of consolidation, that is the groundwork, the foundation for rebuilding and reconstruction that will not be easy, will be oh. painful, will require that consolidation to stay almost intact at central and local levels, and then to help the society go, to go through this process as, as one, if we can say so. Mm. Millions of people have to return home. IDPs have to find a way of uh, building back their lives. And for that to happen, they need to trust themselves mm. as a society and then the political institutions at state institutions that have to be there for them. And if that trust is undermined, that's exactly an opening entry point for Russia-like <laughs> countries. And Russia right. is very skilled in that. Whatever means they will have, they will try to exploit it. So in this case, that's a matter of national security even, how successful Uh, the uh, continuation of reforms in anti-corruption field and specific measures of transparency and integrity of rebuilding and reconstruction should be.
0: Yeah, no, this is actually really an opportunity to win once and for all. The war against corruption in Ukraine, uh, but in in, in the reconstruction uh, process. I mean, I see kind of three kind of threads coming out here. One, corruption is a vector of Russian malign influence. Um, Number one. Number number two, any corruption case could undermine Western support. Um, And Eka, as you pointed out, this need for trust in the process uh, domestically in Ukraine. Um, So I I I just wanted to get that out of the way because I know my Ukrainian listeners are going to be saying, why are you talking about corruption? fighting for our existence they they're right to a degree and this should not be framed as the you know the West preaching to Ukraine about how it should uh, how, how it should conduct its affairs this is all in, in in Ukraine's interest and it will make it more secure from Russia going forward Josh I want to come back to you and talk about this conference in Berlin um, you just got back from this recent donor conference again you and ambassador Eisen uh, wrote a wrote, wrote a good piece that I'm going to share in the show notes with you with with our with our listeners um, on your takeaways but I saw a lot of like people saying that this ended up being just a a big nothing burger. There was there were no commitments. Uh, you, I understand, have a very different take on this. Um, so would you share because this this donor conference is really kicking off. It was like the kickoff of creating this kind of modern day Marshall plan for Ukraine when the war's over. So how, what, what did you see? what did you take away from the conference?
1: yeah, it's it's part of a process that is turning out to be slow. I mean, it started there was a first conference. Uh, over the summer in Lugano, Switzerland, and you could describe both that one and this one in in Berlin as as frustrating in that the donors did not come with with either pledges of money or 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 or, or commitments agreement around the architecture for how to deliver assistance. There's a lot of talk about the principles and the process, and that can be frustrating. <laughs> the, the 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 good news is that Based on the remarks by in last week in Berlin, um, it was hosted by Olaf Scholz and Ursula von der Leyen. If you listen to, to what they, they said, it seems like the reason why donor coordination is taking some time is that an even bigger donor coordination platform is in the works to be announced by the G7 in the months ahead. It was going into the Berlin conference. Von der Leyen had been wanting aid, to rebuild Ukraine, to be led by the European Union and Ukraine, without a prominent role for the United States. Of course, the United States did not did not like that. We want to have a seat at the table, but also, Schultz didn't particularly like that Eurocentric approach because he wants U.S. money to to help pay right. for for reconstruction. Otherwise, it, you know, could require common bonds in Europe, which would cause his liberal party to leave his coalition in in Berlin. So the most useful outcome of Berlin was that Schultz and the Americans effectively seemed to have successfully insisted on a broader recovery platform to be co-chaired by the US, the EU and Ukraine and and announced by the G7 within the next couple of months. That's what everybody said in Berlin, including von der Leyen. And so now we have a couple of months until the announcement of that by the G7. And so what I'm advocating for now is for the the G7 to attach a few significant anti-corruption conditions to the launch of that
0: platform. Now, just to get a sense of how this is going to work, we basically we have the – so we're going to have the US, the EU, the G7, and the in Ukraine basically creating this platform for donors. Now, are these donors going to be – is this money going to come from the private sector, from the public sector, from governments? How is this going to work for those of us that have not spent our lives in, in the financial world? How is this going to work?
1: Yeah. All, all, all of the above ta- taxpayer money has to be there alongside private money a very prominent role for civil society and eventually after we get through the rule of law process hopefully funding from seized russian, russian assets as well but that is going to take time and we cannot we cannot wait for that but you know the, the private sector needs to be prominent but for them to feel comfortable doing that they they, they want to feel like they're investing alongside taxpayers As well so all the above
2: if i may add if i may add sort of few details i think what matters in this situation time uh time is of essence war is still ongoing and then there is as much as possible confidence and credibility of support of ukraine that needs to be strengthened so what i would wish to happen is something similar that we've had in georgia quite soon after the war wars ended and i understand that in ukraine that needs to happen even before the war is ending when international community and donors and with the Georgian government, we are able to have that visible headlining you know, result of the donor conference right in October 2022, with 4.5 billion of support to Georgia being pledged already. That soon after the war ended, we essentially had. So this is in 2008, the, after
0: the war ended. In 2008, in 2008
2: oh, yeah. what I mean by that is that it's not even the figures that are spent right away that uh, that matter, which they do, but inevitability of that support coming in that should come as soon as possible and in the situation of Ukraine one could even differentiate between the fast recovery and then overall rebuilding and recovery Mm -hmm. and to make the pledge then fast recovery will start even before the war ends and what it will be Mm -hmm. and for pledges to be made because if we target any any interest of uh, private investors to put money into this project and, and invest in this process, they need to understand that it's really happening. So longer the talks continue, that is not reflecting well, I would say, uh, on the process. And in this regard, I would be cautious about overcomplicating the process as well. As agile and flexible the governing structure could be so that it can actually process funds with some agility rather than overly complicated processes while having transparent uh, and accountable processes, including digital platforms created on the ground so that the projects are managed in a transparent and accountable way, yeah. that could work. Because talking too much perhaps about what the structures would be and overly bureaucratizing, so to say, if I may say so, this whole process or the outcome of that, could have very good intentions into it, but then could overcomplicate a process. And agility in this case is key, even with operationalization of the funds that are pledged, because sometimes it takes years before the funds are actually accessible than on the ground for actual reconstruction projects. So we need to make it more flexible and agile with 100% Hundred percent assurance of integrity and transparency, of course, well, of this, the process.
0: This is something I do echo, and Josh, want to drill into a little bit. It's a, another one of these elephants in the room related to the first elephant that was in the room, and that's the, the the Ukrainian oligarchs. They've been really quiet during the war, right? And I'm not just talking about the pro-Russian oligarchs like Medvedchuk, who's now was was arrested and eventually exchanged in is in Russia now, um, or, or 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 Firtash or the other pro-Russian oligarchs, but even the the pro-Western oligarchs like Ihor. Lomoisky. They've been silent, um, which makes me nervous. I don't know what they're up to. Right? Um, and they're going to want to get their fingers in this pie. And if you make a process that is too agile or too non-bureaucratic, if you will, doesn't such a laissez-faire approach run the risk that Bad actors um, might be able to to to, to leverage this press. Remember the original Marshall Plan. I mean, God, the U.S. military was distributing aid at the local level. There was like mm-hmm. it was completely controlled by the U.S. Um, in that sense. You don't want to go with some model like that, but but how do you address that risk?
2: Joshua, I could or, I could just start, yeah. I could I short. could start with that when we speak about the agility, just to make it clear. I have in mind that strategic layer of donors coordination and governing mechanism, how they decide to operate with the money that could be pledged. And that's the ultimate high layer of how donors could establish the governing structure of operating with the funds that will be accumulated. And if that takes too long as a time for that to be established, that's gonna be a problem at the end of Mm -hmm. the day. But when it comes to the way how the funds are actually channeled through at the operational level, then we have to have the proper mechanisms which ensure not only agility, but then full oversight of the process. And that's possible in modern times, how to do that. So there's no compromise when it comes to Mm -hmm. a transparency of the process. And then when it comes to accountability to that as well. But other than that, if we overcomplicate that strategic layer of how it will operate, that might take too much time before everybody Mm. agrees to it and how it will operate by manning that structure even at that level. And oligarchs, to be honest, and I myself now in the country which is captured by an oligarch in Georgia, right? right? So I don't believe in Western-minded oligarchs, to be honest, or oligarchs Mm. that are sort of a good guys, relatively so. They can be somewhat conducive to positive changes if they feel that they have to. But then oligarchy per se is a bad precedent for any country to have. So in this particular moment, the rebuilding and reconstruction of Ukraine, if it's done properly, can actually be that, you know, changing a crossroad for Ukraine to deoligarkazaise yep. de- the yep. de- oligarchization of yep. the different sectors of economy, because it's going to be completely new chapter with accession process to the EU, green energy, building better approach to it. And then here is the critical factor. As much as uh, attractiveness for foreign actors will be ensured with the investment climate in the country to come in and diversify uh, different sectors of economy, that's ultimately is the objective to be achieved, so that apart from the local actors, which remain to be as big economic actors, part of the economic development of Ukraine, we don't see monopolizations maintained right. as a process, and then you know consolidation of economic power in in few hands.
0: No, this is again it's a it's an opportunity. I mean, the, the more the word that keeps coming into my mind is opportunity. Go ahead, Josh.
1: Yeah, the the, the opportunity. To create something that as you said, Brian, it, it would be different in some important ways from the original Marshall Marshall plan. It's not going to be the government governments themselves, government to government funding pouring money into, you know Ukrainian ministries and the budget. That is not going to work. that.'s like a surefire way to seed a new a new oligarchy. And you know th- this is also unlike the original Marshall plan. This is not one country paying to rebuild many. it's it's many countries paying mm. to rebuild one we don't need to create new ifis and entirely new agencies the way we did in the late 40s we can use those ones that we created then we have substantial international financial institutions that we need we need to 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 utilize and just coordinate and you know as you have said brian like famously the co- corruption is the new communism so the political objective here is very different we're not countering communism and laying the foundation for the creation of the European Union, like the original Marshall Plan, where were, we're countering corruption and bringing Ukraine into the European mm-hmm. Union. So very, very different, reverse Marshall Plan kind of uh, objectives and process here. In, but it's important in that to elevate anti-corruption both in. The conditions that are required of Ukraine and in the structure of of how the money is brought in in a way that 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 safeguards taxpayer resources
0: it's my assumption that this is all going to be done in coordination with the accession process uh to the European Union so it's good it's it's all going to be kind of working hand in glove again the, the, the word opportunity just keeps coming to mind this is an opportunity to really really remake Ukraine into a modern democratic European state and almost like a big bang so out of the horrors of this war we were we, we were the, the aim is to get a a new Ukraine I want to drill down into like the next steps now you Josh you talk about the, the you know the creation of this this platform with the US the EU the G7 and the Ukrainian governments. Um, you also have written a bit about the role of civil society and the role civil society should play in this. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about like the the next steps. How do you design what this aid is actually going to do? Once you get these donors and this 300 billion that you you need to rebuild Ukraine, you got the platform in place. Well, then what's, what's all that money going to do and who's going to do it? Like what, and and what role is civil society going to have in that?
1: Yeah, well, civil society is going to have a very prominent and important and shaping role. They have to. They're not just monitoring. They're not just, you know, they're there to check after after the fact. They they need to be, you know, at the table from day one. That was one of my complaints about Berlin last week. Is that there of the 30 speakers, only one was was from Ukrainian uh, civil society. So when this new secretariat. Is established, to the point you just made, it, it needs to be designed in a way that, that facilitates, that makes it a roadmap toward EU ascension. That's why even though it'll be the leadership will be shared with the United States, what we have been recommending at the German Marshall fund and what von der Leyen announced last week is that the EU would be the Secretariat so it would be it would be supported by EU staff in Brussels who know about how to do enlargement and that they would bring together G7 representatives IFI representatives and civil society representatives to be to be doing the work of, of prioritizing sectors and figuring, you know, figuring out how to to invest in in ways that set up whatever, you know, whether it's clean climate or an energy grid or or, or w- w- whatever it is to to facilitate EU ascension or other infrastructure needs. Pro- figure out where funding is needed and what conditions are required. Integrate that with the preconditions for EU ascension. That all has to be done together, you know, with everyone at the table, both bureaucrats in Brussels, donors around, and civil society
0: and you uh, you, you the, the goal is to have this all ready to basically for lack of a better phrase pull the trigger when the war is over right i mean it's it, the the idea is to have this ready to go um, it's just kind of a turnkey situation is it, yeah.
1: even before that so to aka's point you know the, the, it's not just reconstruction it's also the immediate re- relief Needs and so one of the interesting ideas that also came out of Berlin from the Ukrainians is to have a, a financial Rammstein type of grouping mm-hmm. where you know s- s- similar to what what we do at Rammstein Air Base in coordinating security assistance to similarly have a grouping of of finance ministers that can just start meeting right now. And, mm-hmm. and eventually can roll that into the donor coordination platform. And when that comes up is, is launched in, in the months ahead, but that, you know, the focus right there is like on the winter, you know, it, it, it Immediate immediate needs of heating infrastructure and gas and blankets and shelters and that type of
0: stuff. So some of this is going to start even before the war is over. I mean we don't know how long the war is going to last. I'm expecting it to be like Mm -hmm. you know at least another year is what is what a lot of estimates uh, out there are saying if not longer. So this needs to start before the war even 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 ends. Eka, you wanted to jump in. Some
2: of it some of it is already happening. I mean uh, the the speed and efficiency with which Ukrainian government is coping with, um, you know, reversing the impact of Russian bombardment is, is astonishing. I mean, you see that yeah. the streets and roads and bridges essential for uh, supply chains and for social communication. It's just rebuilt in a remarkably short time as much as they can. So that mobilization is already there. It's partially assisted financially, obviously, with the assistance, including from the U.S. government, which is the biggest when it comes to direct financial support to the budget that, uh, that Ukrainian government is, is receiving at this point. And then second, uh, it's housing and then it's the infrastructure that is essential as a social infrastructure for people to continue to live in Ukraine, right? And they are tens of millions that still stay in Ukraine and then fight for their freedom and freedom of all of us. Now, when it comes to uh, the process itself, uh, preparations are key to make the system work well when the time comes for the large scale activities. And for that, what is already happening, is very important. And civil society is an integral part of that. We have now works that are directed at modification and upgrading of the electronic procurement system, so that it's fit for the uh, procurement system, uh, procurement processes that are needed for the rebuilding and reconstruction. World Bank had an assessment of how the system could be fit for that, and it's a very positive one. We are already working in U.S. government through USAID is actively helping with development of the registry for the assessment of the damages, and it will be a fully transparent system identifying all damages and projects for the reconstruction. The same goes at the municipal level with the Ministry of the Regions. And then this whole systems of monitoring and management even of business processes related to uh, rebuilding and reconstruction. And uh, there is this big coalition called Rice Coalition created by the uh, Ukrainian CSOs. Uh, we as a project uh, assist uh, quite substantially for the development of this coalition as much as other donors. So uh, the main takeaway from this process is that the capacities that are needed for them to be active participants is delivered to them, there will be more support coming in, and then government is integrating them as a resource that is basically human and intellectual resource for moving things forward. We have to understand that the human loss is quite substantial in Ukraine. By the time when the absorption of these financial means needs to happen, it might be even more. So I uh, Boosting up the manpower of those with capacities and even not only finances, but abilities to run the projects and management of projects uh, that will be integral for a building and a construction, because that's going to be local capacities. They need to be helped to be developed and maintained and be resilient, because otherwise money can be pledged, but they will not be absorbed.
0: Right, right. I want to also highlight something you said there, Echo, that I think really needs to be amplified. Is that the how efficient the Ukrainian state is actually operating? Oh. Right, it, it is the opposite of a failed state. It is the of opposite course. of a failed state. If this is a failed state, give me a failed state. The the speed with which they're 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 um, they're they're repairing damage. The but, the but but down to banal things. I mean, teachers are getting paid. Pensions are getting paid. Everything's working, and it's really remarkable. Josh, go ahead.
1: Yeah, and 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 it's building on the progress that they they made and the capacities developed over the over the past eight years. Everything that Eka just described, only the Ukrainians could could do all of that to, to this degree of transparency. You know, uh, not everybody knows that uh, Ukraine since 2014 created the world's first public beneficial ownership registry, the world's most transparent system of public procurement, the world's. First public database of politically exposed persons. The world's most comprehensive and well-enforced asset declaration system. We go through that in the uh, USAID's new decleptification guide. For anyone who wants to see the story over 18 pages of all the miraculous anti-corruption reforms done by Ukraine over over the past eight years, check that out. I mean, that's just transparency, let alone like accountability and the rule of law stuff. So they can do this.
0: Just share a link to that. To me, because I would like to put that in the show notes, actually, for our readers, with the other things I'm I'm sharing there. Um, The the last thing before we go into the second half and look at the kind of the political calculus here in the U.S. um, There's another elephant in the room. I got lots of elephants today. Um, The other elephant in the room are these seized Russian assets. Um, Now I have lost count of the exact dollar figure. I think it's around 300 billion total, if if I'm not mistaken, um, which is very very similar to the number we need to rebuild. Ukraine, uh, right? Um, now, there has been talk of those assets being used um, for Ukraine's reconstruction in the form of, uh, of involuntary reparations on Russia's part, if you, if you will. Um, I, there's been a lot of talk about the selling the yachts and giving the money to Ukraine. But really, where the real money is, is this 300000000000 billion that's been either frozen or seized. Now, I don't know the legal ins and outs of that. That's why we have Josh here. Um, Josh, is that doable or is that ridiculous?
1: It's it's doable if it's done carefully and 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 in accordance with domestic and international law in a way that's coordinated and we take our time and talk to, to market participants and especially in the United States there's going to be a lot of concern about about doing it in a way that doesn't that doesn't look extra legal and just grabbing money in a way that that would in, endanger the. The, the extent to which other I mean uh, other countries starting with China but not limited to China are willing to put hundreds of billions of dollars in the U.S. dollar based yeah. financial system we cannot ruin that that's too valuable to us and to the world but I but it can be done legally and in in ways that respect those those constraints and morally and, and practically it it has to be done it can be done but the issue is that recovery of of any significant amount of assets when you're talking about billions let alone hundreds of billions takes a very long time Ukraine cannot wait for that money donors cannot sit on their hands and wait eventually maybe we can securitize it or be paid back or bring it into you know reconstruction someday but we can't wait for that we can we can more quickly get started with the oligarch assets and even though you're right it's like a tenth of the amount it's you know maybe 30 right. billion instead of 300 billion. I do think that that is important that that is something that we could, for instance, include in security assistance legislation in the lame duck session. There's a bill, a, an amendment out there. And even though it's a lower amount, that it, it it's also very important politically to show to show the American people, you know, what it looks like. And, you know, you, you get these images of, of FBI jackets walking up plank planks onto yachts right. and and that can help sell a model. I love those images. Plan. Yeah, so
0: it's 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 important
1: to do both.
0: So we're doing these guys. We're doing there were these things are kind of two tracks that are going on. One is bring the donors in, also work the legal side for these seized sure. assets and what we can do. Echo you you wanted to. And add then something let's
2: just let's just remember that when it comes to the financial needs, uh, in addition to rebuilding and construction, there is that element of security guarantees for Ukraine that's going to take uh, you know. Quite large uh, need for investment into the, the defense sector in Ukraine as well. So whatever money we can get from Russians, it never be it will never be too much when it comes right. to the too needs much. that are out there, and uh, the parallel streams when we speak about a special tribunal for the crime of aggression that is quite seriously pursued in the European continent right now. Some countries are in lead on pushing for that. And if we talk about the reparations and something that is linked with the crime of aggression per se, there are different ways of legally that could be approached, but that should be a clear target for that to happen. And if there is a political target put on that, then the lawyers find usually solutions to that as well, mm-hmm. if there is a push for that. There is enough <laughs> skills in the in the area to make sure what the solutions could be. But it needs to be carefully tra- Definitely. Well,
0: the the, the my the best news I'm taking away from the first section of today's program is that the Berlin conference was nothing was not a nothing burger. It was a it was a pretty big burger. Um, and that this process is moving. I mean, a lot of us haven't we've been kind of paying attention to the daily slog of the war and in and, 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 and the political side of this. This, it's really good to hear that this is is going on and it's being thought about now so it's going to be ready to go when the war is over. Um, and on that note, we'll segue into the second half. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how the changing political environment in the United States after the upcoming midterm elections can affect assistance to Ukraine. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to The Power of Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington Dowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the David Dowell Center and a non resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood is Josh Rudolph, the fellow from malign influence at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia's sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama. Josh also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. And joining us us from Tbilisi, Georgia, one of my favorite cities in the world, is Eka Keselisrili, who serves as head of USAID's anti-corruption program in Ukraine. Eka also served in the past as Georgia's foreign minister and its justice minister. I'd also like to remind you you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter @powervertical. Yaguy sim Привча Росії до думки, що ані армією, ані терором, ані бутчим іще Росії не вдасться підкорити Україну. Слава усім нашим героям, слава нашему прекрасному народу, слава Украине. So I've got good news, I've got bad news and I've got even worse news. Um, the good news is that the bipartisan consensus in the United States to assist Ukraine is holding for the moment. The bad news ...is that amid high inflation and a faltering economy, it is fraying. And the worst news is that it is likely to fray even more after next week's midterm elections, given that House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's recent remarks... That in the event of a Republican victory, which would make him speaker, which looks very, very likely at this point, aid to Ukraine could be on the chopping block. Um, Yesterday, I saw Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that Ukraine, all, all, all aid to Ukraine is going to be cut. Um, in the event of a Republican victory. Um, I'm not sure how seriously we should take this, but this is something we do need to think about. The the political dynamics in the U.S. are about to change, and they're about to change dramatically. The political di- dynamics in Europe are fraught as always, although the consensus in Europe is holding as well. Josh, what can we be doing about this? I know you are working on an article about this along these lines.
1: Yeah, we we, first of all, have to be taking it very seriously, um, Republican control over the House, as seems likely at this point, is is a, is a grave danger to to support for Ukraine. What I'm thinking about is is how to avoid that crisis from going to waste, as they say, and you know, using it as an opportunity to prioritize anti-corruption. So, if the Republicans win on Tuesday. Then you know on Wednesday, Biden should make a truly perfect phone call to Zelensky, quite the opposite of the 2019 attempt <laughs> by Trump to, to promote a corrupt scheme. You know, Biden should should press for genuine anti-corruption reform, offering both, on the one hand, friendly, you know, reassurance, but then also a tough message. So starting with the good news. Biden should should reassure Zelensky that a massive tranche of security assistance will be treated as as must pass legislation in the lame
0: duck set in the lame duck. That's what I wanted to get to. Yeah.
1: Maybe on the order of 100 billion dollars, which is double the 52 billion dollars that the U.S. has pledged in military, financial and humanitarian aid so far. And, you know, maybe it should include. An independent U.S. inspector general like CIGAR and earmark money for investigative journalism and and, and ensure that that G7 coordination platform that we're talking about is going to itself include an IG to coordinate all IGs. You know, all of that is important to help reduce the risk of Republicans criticizing aid as, as a blank check, you know, that but. The security assistance should not have any strings attached for the Ukrainians. Just keep winning the war. That's their job, that they're doing well. But on the same time, the second tough love message uh, from Biden should be that if Zelensky also wants help paying for post-war reconstruction of Ukraine, he needs to govern as the anti-corruption reformer that he campaigned as in in, in, in 2019. And so specifically what that would look like uh, from the U.S. standpoint um, is is Biden insisting that the U.S. won't launch either or won't support the launch of of either the recovery coordination platform or a new, new IMF program, which the Ukrainians are asking for in, in in the in the first quarter, until the Ukrainian government satisfies the top three of the seven EU preconditions, all three of which relate to the rule of law. So, constitutional court reform, ordinary judicial governance reform, and then leadership leadership selection for for Nabu and if it, if it means waiting a few months for those things so be it a, real anti corruption conditionality has to begin now
0: now, and, and, and this, I assume, is going to be done quietly and not publicly, this, this, yes. this tough love part. Um, Absolutely. Right. Now, I want to talk a little bit. I want to bring Eka in, in a second, but I talk a little bit about this lame duck because I know our, our mutual friend Max Bergman, a former U.S. State Department official, has brought this up that Biden should go to the lame duck and ask for a large enough package that would be enough for the remainder of his term. In other words, so he will not have to go back. That money is earmarked, and he will not have to go back. To the Congress, uh, to the to presumably Republican Congress, to ask for more security assistance or more, more, more financial assistance, um, is is that your understanding to, to 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 get just a large enough package in the lame duck that, it, that 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 he won't have to ask for any more down the road?
1: Absolutely, <laughs> which is which is why I say on the order of a hundred billion dollars. We get right. we, we pledge so far fifty-two billion dollars. This year in 2022. So you think you know two more years to come another hundred billion. Yes, the, the the goal would I would think the goal would be to to not have to come back over the next two years. It right. was it was in that Punchbowl News uh, article that that quoted McCarthy you know saying blank check that referred to the possibility of getting a year's worth of security assistance, which it sounds like actually that McCarthy and the Republicans. To, may actually like that as well so that they don't have to deal with it just yet. Um, but, but I'm, I'm more with, with you and Max on, you know, the, the rest of the term, meaning right. another hundred.
0: Okay. hundred. What, what are you, I mean, how does this look from across the Atlantic? Um, the, the, I was just in Vilnius at a conference um, and there's concerns in Europe about, you know, where things are going to go politically in the U S what this is going to mean for support for Ukraine. Um, how does this look from where, where, where you're sitting and how does the situation look in Europe at this point? I mean, it's a, th- these problems are not unique to the United States. I um, mean, fatigue mm-hmm. for supporting Ukraine, uh, is, go- is, is, as the winter sets in, um, with high inflation, this could be a problem in Europe as well. So how does this all look from the other side of the pond?
2: what i see when it comes to the public opinion and then the political readiness to to stay uh on on the common platform when it comes to support to ukraine except for hungary and then you know the exceptions like that uh it's still very firm because what what europe did, they started to reshape their you know they 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 plans and readiness to sustain winter in the way that they can survive well when it comes to maintaining the political support. It's quite remarkable. Part of it is because Russia made itself uh, mistakes of cutting off the gas supplies too early, perhaps, and then becoming an openly boogeyman uh, for everybody. So in that sense, there was time before winter came for Europe to be assisted by the U.S. and other suppliers as well, including for my own region, from Azerbaijan, there are some, you know, new agreements that have been made for larger supplies. But then Bulgaria pretty much survived right. in so many ways with supplies from uh, with with the agreements that they've made with the leadership of Azerbaijan. So in this case, Europe started very proactively to look up for alternative supplies, and then the publicity that all of it uh, makes now in Europe. And first of all, Ukrainian people who are, you know, winning the hearts and minds of everybody in Europe. I hardly can see that something can change to the degree that it can have a U-turn when it comes to uh, unity of the European Union's position. We see that even the new government of Italy, with all the challenges that one might see, could have been predicted. When it comes to the prime minister herself, she was very clear when it comes to how the war needs to be ended, military support to Ukraine, and that's how you end the war in Ukraine. So right. was well, good to hear that from her. So all I'm saying is that Europe is I mean, it will be a difficult season, but it's in the firm position, Mm -hmm. as much as I can say. But everybody looks, obviously, how the transatlantic unity would continue in this case. And obviously Ukrainians as well in this direction. What I could recommend, we've had our own ups and downs in Georgia, when administrations would change, because it always happens in in situations when there is a crisis and post-conflict situations. It is very important to be proactively engaged on a bipartisan basis, what Ukrainians are doing remarkably well, I would say. Not to create an image of villains of Republicans by by those who are well- heartedly Mm supporting ukraine because they are champions in the republican party that needs to be supported highlighted engaged Mm -hmm. so that it's not a position from defense that republican party will be looking at what will be uh, support to ukraine because it will be a mistake uh, because i don't think that it's uh, well grounded in that sense and then finally as much as even with the security risks as they are republican party representatives could travel together with the democratic colleagues Uh from Congress and from Senate, when you see it on the ground, what it takes for Ukrainians to fight in, in the way that they do, it, it has an, 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 an unraisable, uh, I would say, impact on anybody. So exposure to Ukraine, broadening that, finding allies, that champions uh, that could sustain that momentum of bipartisan support, this is where, against the work of uh, many of uh, us and CSO representatives and Ukrainian government should be as well to generate That continuity, so to say, no matter what happens, because ultimately, uh, U.S. is on the solid ground when it comes to support to Ukraine.
0: Yeah, and I want to stick with that, that thought and get, get, bring, bring Josh in on this because, I mean, notwithstanding Leader McCarthy's comments and notwithstanding Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments, it's still – it's my understanding that a majority of Republicans still support aid to Ukraine. Um, this is still there. Public opinion is still strongly in support. Of yeah. aid to Ukraine, I, I was in. I was down in Texas a couple of weeks ago and saw Ukrainian flags all over the place. <laughs> right, so um, and so um, it's it, it's um, I mean, I expect to see this in D.C., but it was very heartening to see it in um in in Texas as well. So, Josh, is this is this maybe a phantom fear here that this is really not something that we? I mean, we should be worried about everything, but maybe we shouldn't be panicking about this because there are powerful voices in the Republican Party who are very very Pro support for Ukraine, um, yeah. Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham. I mean, there's a lot of the Republic, leading Republicans who are, yeah. Mitch McConnell, for example. Yeah. So what? How do you look at? I mean, you're 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 you over on the Hill. How do you look at the political landscape, really? Um, notwithstanding McCarthy and, and Green's comments.
1: Yeah. No. It's it, it's in it's in between. It's not something that we can ignore, and it's not something that we can panic about. Um, I I do think it's substantial and i mean the the group of lawmakers you know the marjorie taylor green types she's not alone there's a handful there's a cohort of them that are very much in that populist vein of wanting to shut down support for ukraine wanting to be against anything that could potentially make the administration look look good i i do think it rises to a a a a medium you know type of concern when you hear the comments from the incoming speaker of the house as well and he, he is responding to that part of his of his caucus um so so it's 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 significant even though even though the majority of republicans and certainly the majority of the public are are all for continuing to support ukraine that's thanks to to the the bravery and the sacrifice and the valor of ukrainians even though those support levels have picked up over the past couple months during the counteroffensive. Uh, everyone likes a winner, um, but 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 to to your point and to Eka's point about uh, the need to bring in those Republican voices and 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 help help them be improving this entire enterprise. You know that be, because a lot of their ideas can improve it. The the, the push for accountability and inspector generals has come from the Republican side. Mm-hmm. We can use that on the on the anti-corruption work. There's also concern about about burden sharing um, with regards to the U.S. versus the EU and and how much each has supported and in what form so far. There the, there are reasonable conversations. To be to be had there so for instance I, I said that the United States had pledged this year 52 billion um, I think the same figure in the EU is 29 billion and that EU funding is leans more in the form of loans whereas in the United States it's grants so you know it, it would be it would be reasonable at this stage to talk about potentially, Flipping that, mm-hmm. that 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 burden not not with regards to the security assistance, but when you when you go from security assistance to recovery and and, mm-hmm. and and reconstruction, both need to be at at the table. And the United States is going to need to appropriate significant amounts of money to dedicate to reconstruction as well. But it would be reasonable to expect the the, the Europeans to lead on the burden share, given that this is ultimately about. Uh, bringing Ukraine, both yeah. the security of Ukraine and bringing Ukraine into the EU.
0: Yeah, and that would also, yeah, would have the effect of making it much more palatable um, in, in in the Congress. Not just to pick on the Republicans. I mean, there we had this letter from the Progressive Caucus, you know, calling on the Biden administration to negotiate, which tells me there are rumblings on the left wing of the Democratic Party as well as on the right wing of the mm-hmm. Republican Party. The good news is the consensus is holding right now. Um, the good news is that the, the this, this this remains very popular. Um, among the American electorate, Um, and it still does have bipartisan support, and I still believe that there is a majority of Republicans that that support this. I don't know how that changes when the new Congress comes in. I guess we'll see what the composition of that Congress is going to be and what the composition of the Republican uh, caucus is going to be in that Congress. Um, We're bumping up against the end here. I know, uh, Josh, you got a meeting to run to, and Eka, you are late for your dinner. Um, Are there any last thoughts you wanted to share with us before we wrap it up for the week?
1: I, th- I think that, that that was a great point that you were ending on, that that we have a majority of the American population and, and a majority of, 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 of lawmakers. Um, I think you 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 described it on on last week's vertical as, you know, having a solid base between the 40 yard lines. Yeah. I, I, I would even say that, you know, it's while it's the strongest in, in the center there that you, you have on balance support. From you know everything between the ten yard lines, you know the the right. vast majority of the field, and it's these fringes on the on the so far at this point uh, that we have to be concerned about. But those fringes are growing in 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 yep. their you know how vocal they are and their numbers, and so we have to just make sure that that we are doing this in a, in a way that that uses those thoughts and perspectives to make the whole thing stronger and. The single most important part of that, which you know we should get started on, coming right out of the midterms next week, is prioritizing anti-corruption. your last.
2: Thoughts. I think, in adding, I would I would go to the to the bigger context related issue once again that we all knew that sometime soon within this era of big tectonic changes crisis would come, right? So, you know, one could have thought it would have been Russia or went down the road it would have been China. And unknowns were just too many, right? And just imagine that if the predictions would have come true as they were previously, that Ukraine would fall as soon as it was predicted, What would have been chances for us to have an expectation that the future world order would have been the one we would want to have for us and for our children Mm -hmm. and to maintain rules-based international order? What we have now, and it's ironic maybe for some to hear it at a time of the brutal war, that again, it's an opportunity and chance that Ukrainians gave to all of us to shape that new world order in the way that we can be actually not even satisfied, but proud of, so that that change happened in the way that the world does not dissolve into, again, might makes right type of an era, especially at a time of huge economic changes as well, but rather gave us the chance to build the future, which could be, orderly and then still conducive for human beings to thrive in different parts of the world. And we owe it to Ukraine now to consolidate our resources. So when we speak about help to Ukraine, it's not actually something that we do it out of the good heart or as a charity. To a country somewhere else but basically we are investing in our own future mm-hmm. and in my part of the world it's already palpable weakness of russia is felt at every level yep. here yeah. in the region and then it's you know we feel it with the fabric of our uh our guts. i would say that it's happening i mean the the world is changing and it's not changing for the worse but we can actually conclude the process of the imperialization of Russia and building up the new world order, in which I would really expect all the challenges that many might expect from China in the future could be averted because it's a new framework that could be built if we make it right through victory of Ukraine and full recovery of Ukraine. And then with that, building up the order that can actually be somewhat really predictable rather than chaotic yeah. and threatening to our children and future generations. Yeah,
0: no, Ukraine may have just saved the world um, and say, certainly saved the rules-based international order. That's a great, positive, uh, optimistic note to wrap it up on. That's all we have time for today. Unfortunately, I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Art McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C.'s historic Capitol Hill neighborhood has been Josh Rudolph a fellow for multiline finance at the German Marshall Funds Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama. Joss also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. And joining us from the beautiful capital city of Georgia, Tbilisi, has been Eka Kashalashvili, who serves as head of USAID's anti-corruption program in Ukraine. Eka also served as Georgia's foreign minister and chief. Justice Minister, thank you both for an enlightening conversation. I've really learned a lot today.
2: Thank you. Good Good. to see you both.
0: Good to see you. All right. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Ligas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn if you do please leave us a big fat five star rating and review because that helps our visibility you can also access the podcast read the power vertical blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org. and you can follow us on the twitter at power vertical join us again next week and until then i leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team